Hello, hello, and welcome back. Welcome back to the little podcast. We have been looking through uh, what is Reformed theology, specifically what are the five points of Calvinism, and that's that fun little acronym, TULIP. T, total depravity. U, unconditional election. And last time, we addressed probably the most controversial point of the five, which is the L. Limited atonement. And last time we said that Christ's atoning death on the cross was effectual for the elect. And so remember, the question here is not really who all did Christ die for. I think the bigger question, or maybe the question behind the question, is this Did Christ make salvation possible, or did Christ make salvation definite? Did he accomplish it? And I'm inclined to say that his uh, atoning death on the cross was effective. It accomplished what it set out to do. A great verse for this is Hebrews 9, 12 that says, He entered once for all into the holy place, taking not the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Now, why is this uh, so important? Well, here's a personal anecdote. When I was in high school, uh, it was the first time I really heard the gospel, and I became a Christian. And I was told, uh, Jesus has done something for you. And so, if there are a hundred steps between you and God, he came more than halfway. It's like he, he, he walked 99 steps. You now only have to take one little step towards him. Jesus did something, but you have some work to do as well, even if it's so small by comparison. And so that's how I kind of thought and believed. And so the first time I heard about this limited atonement, all this Calvinism reform stuff, I thought this is crazy. This does not sit well with me. This is like heretical insanity stuff. But the older I have gotten, the more this has become really, really good news. Because when, when I became, when I first became a Christian, I prayed, you know, the sinner's prayer like 20 times. I went back into my little room and I prayed the sinner's prayer to receive Jesus as my Savior 20 different times that night. Because I felt like I had to better make sure that I did that right. If that one little step was up to me, I had to make sure I did that one little step Right. So even from the beginning of my spiritual life, there was this deep spiritual insecurity of, was my faith genuine enough? Did I really believe that time or do I need to do it again, but this time a little bit more genuinely, a little bit more fervently? If you think his salvation is available to you, but it's dependent on something that you do, there is an unavoidable insecurity in your Christian life. And there always will be. His salvation is available only if, and then if you supply some conditions of faith or moral goodness or being radical or whatever, you will be undone whenever you experience any doubts, and you will, or whenever you screw up in some moral way, and you will. You'll have no assurance of your salvation or of his love for you if at some point it's up to you. But the good news of the gospel is articulated in the lyrics of the old hymn, 
Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. He did it all. His, he secured eternal redemption. Now, big questions, big issues, big objections get raised, and I want to go through four. I want to put limited atonement on trial here and see if this pans out. So here is objection number one. But okay, Matt, there are passages that talk about Christ dying for the world. Ever heard of John 3.16, Matt? You could also look at John chapter 1, verse 29, or 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, or 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. What do we say when Jesus died for not just our sins, but the world? <laughs> Here's the response. Uh, world, that word world doesn't mean every individual person. In Luke chapter 2, verse 1, when it says, all the world was taxed by Caesar Augustus, that is not including people of Northern Europe or China. This, this is simply meaning the Roman Empire, not every single individual in the world. And another example, in John chapter 12, verse 19, when they say, look how the whole world has gone after him, talking about Jesus' followers. Clearly, not every single individual in the entire world was following Jesus. My point with these examples is that the word world means lots of different things. Sometimes it's used in a way that refers to just the entire cosmos, just the entire universe in some sense. Uh, sometimes the word world is referring to the system of values that are opposed to the kingdom of God. But often the word world just means humanity in general. In fact, the, the, the reason why many biblical authors used the word world was to correct a Jewish error in thinking that Jesus died only for ethnic Israelites. It is, uh, you could say, the, quote, ethnic particularism that is being challenged when it refers to Jesus dying for humanity as a whole, for the, for the world. Uh, in, in 1984, the Olympics were held in Los Angeles, and one of the announcers very famously said, The world is at our doorstep. Now, this obviously didn't mean every individual in the world, but it was simply meaning every nation represented in the world is here. So when it talks about Christ dying for the world, I think that's what it's referring to. Objection number two. Okay, Matt, but there are passages that talk about Christ dying for, quote, all men. Romans 5.18 1 Corinthians 15, 22, 2 Corinthians 5, 15, 1 Timothy 2, 4, and 6. What do we do with that, Matt? Well, my response is, is that in each of these passages, the all, that word all there simply means all kinds of people who are in Christ. If the quote all means every single individual, then again, I think it proves too much. 
Because once again, it, that would suggest universalism, that there is no eternal judgment, there is no hell, and the Bible seems to go against that. But the passage that I just listed uh, a second ago, again, they refer to the reality that both Jews and Gentiles would be saved. In other words, Christ died for all men without distinction. He died for Jew and Gentile alike, but not without exception. He did not die for the purpose of saving each and every lost sinner. That is to say, Christ's mission was universal in scope, but limited in its efficaciousness, to use fun big words. Christ died for all men without distinction, but not without exception. Let's look at uh, two kind of case studies here. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. It reads this. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It says Jesus tasted death for everyone. Okay, who is the everyone? What is everyone referring to? Well, go down to the very next verse for a little bit of context. If you look at verse 10, it says, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It says he brings many sons to glory, not everyone. And in fact, in verse 11, he refers to them as brothers and that his death made them holy, which is also verse 11 and 14. The point is, if you zoom out to the bigger context, that word everyone in this passage means all of those who trust Jesus, the many sons he brings to glory, those who are his brothers, those that he makes holy. That, that's who the quote everyone is referring to there. Not every single individual living and breathing, but to his people. Here's another example. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What does Paul mean by all? It's a fun nursery rhyme. What does Paul mean by all? Well, jump up to chapter 2, verse 1. Zoom out for the bigger context. Paul doesn't mean every single human being. L look at what he says. He says, I urge that prayers and supplications, interceptions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And then he clarifies what he means by all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. On and on and on. He's referring to all sorts of people, all sorts of authorities and classes. He's saying pray for all types of people, whatever their station in life is. It's the same idea behind chapter 2, verse 6, just a couple of verses down. It says that Jesus died as a ransom for all men, meaning all types of people. Uh, this is the basic idea. When it says all, it just simply means that salvation is not limited to a particular ethnic group or gender or any other subsection of humanity. You can say with full authority and fully believing in, in limited atonement, Jesus died for all, meaning not just one type of person, but for all types of people. Objection number 
three. But doesn't God love everyone, Matt? Doesn't doesn't God love everyone? Well, here's here's a response, and I think that there are there are four different ways that you can define love in the Bible. Number one is you talk about the love that God has within Himself, within the Trinity, the love of God within the Trinity. Number two, the Bible talks about the love that God has for the incarnate Christ, the way that the Father loves the Son. Number three, there is the general love of God for the world. Uh, In passages where it talks about God makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust, that there is this general overshadowing kindness he gives to everyone, grace for everyone us to breathe, grace in his oversight and his preservation of all of his creation, grace for the righteous, grace for the unrighteous. And then number four, the Bible uses uh, love in, in a certain way to refer to the specific love and special marital love that God has for his own people. So you could say, uh, is it true that Matt Howell me. Is it true that Matt Howell loves everyone at UT? And I think you could say, yes, that is true. Matt Howell loves his students. He loves UT students. He loves uh, the students that are involved in RUF. But is it also true that Matt Howell loves his wife? Yes, that is true as well. But those two different words have very radically different meanings. I do not love my students in the same way that I love my wife. If I did, I would be fired. So what we see here is that Calvinists are not limiting God's love. In fact, if I could be so bold, I think it's those that disagree with the doctrine of limited atonement that would limit God's love because they would have to say there is no fourth level to God's love here. God only has a generalized love for everybody. And so I don't I don't think that it is unloving of God to not redeem everyone. Uh, I think it would be unloving for God to punish someone eternally, even after Jesus had already paid the ransom for their release. Objection number four. But okay, doesn't this interfere with the full and free offer of the gospel? Well, here would be a response. Uh, We see both sides of the truth, I think, in John chapter 6, verse 37. It says, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's election. All that the Father gives me, election, they will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And then there's the free offer. Whoever comes to me, that's the free offer of the gospel. I will never draw... I will never drive away. We offer a completed salvation to people, a real savior to people. And I believe that we are commissioned by God to do this and to offer this. 
I'll end with one last quote. I know that this does not answer all of your questions. You probably have more. You most definitely have more. Uh, But here's a final quote from Charles Spurgeon. And again, old school snarky language, but here he goes. And then I hear another objection. How can you, sir, upon that theory of limited atonement, go to preach the gospel unto every creature? I could not go upon any other theory, for I dare not go that fool's errand of preaching a redemption that might not redeem, a salvation that might not save. I could not go to a man and say, Believe, and thou shalt be saved. He would ask me, Do you think you are going to heaven? Yes. Well, why? Well, because Christ died for me. But if he died for everybody, so my chances are therefore just as good as yours. And after he had accepted my declaration, he might reply, Is there any real reason why I should rejoice? Some for whom Christ died are in hell. What makes me so sure I will not go there? Is it rather a faulty piece of good news? Because it is nothing positive. It is a grand uncertainty you have proclaimed to me. So you see what Spurgeon is saying, again, in his fun, snarky way. That when we offer the gospel to people, when we, when we declare the cross and declare the gospel to people, we are declaring a full salvation with a legitimately free offer included in it that anyone can respond to. Whoever comes to me, I will never draw away. I will never drive away. But the great hope and the great kind of evangelistic confidence is the first half of John 6.37 All that the Father gives me will come to me. We're going to talk a whole lot more about this next time when we look at the I in the tulip. But until then, there you go for limited atonement.